Thanks very much for listening. And I wanted to remind all of our listeners that on November 28th, 2022, over the following two weeks, we will have our conference in Las Vegas at the Palace Station. We will have 19 classes over that two-week period. It's one of the largest law enforcement training conferences in the country, certainly the longest running since it's been going on since 1987. Uh, We will have great classes. There will be internal affairs, detective and criminal investigator, death and homicide investigations, mobile phone investigations, ton of great classes. Check out our website at patc.com and we hope to see you there. Greetings and welcome uh, to the PATC podcast. We very much appreciate your attendance and listening. My name is Mark Waterfell. I'm the president and owner of Public Agency Training Council. Uh, With me is Dave Broadway. Hello, how are you out there? Dave, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm 34 years retired law enforcement. I've spent almost 10 years on the local level in in the in our police department, and then I went to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, which is a statewide investigative agency. I teach adjunct currently at Western Carolina University in the School of Criminology, and um, I also adjunct for PATC, which uh, it's really great to keep my fingers in it with um, current law enforcement. Fantastic! And uh, we have with us today Mark Kolar. Mark teaches officer-involved shooting and. Mark, would you like to say a little few words about your background? Uh, sure. Thank you, Mark. I am a 29-year uh, veteran of law enforcement, uh, still active as the special agent in charge for a, a statewide criminal investigative agency. Uh, we have two divisions in that agency. I oversee the technical invi- uh, investigations division, uh, which handles all the crime scene, cyber crime, criminal intelligence unit, public official corruption, um, our integrity unit, forensic accounting, polygraph, uh, and uh, also our oversee our officer-involved shooting and use of force in investigative teams uh, that we have through throughout the state. We really appreciate having you here. Give our audience a little bit of background on your day to day. What are you doing in a typical day there for the state of Ohio? So on a, on a day-to-day basis, again, overseeing the technical investigations division, uh, but specifically as it relates to, to the officer-involved shooting investigations, um, we are constantly uh, taking a look at the way we do things, uh, new technologies that, that are available, and uh, ensuring that we are uh, setting the standard for best practices for officer-involved shooting investigations. They're, they're, in my opinion, one of the most important investigations that can be conducted by law enforcement. They are certainly scrutinized by the public uh, to, a, to a great degree. Um, many, many times they result in the loss of, of human life. And anytime a, uh, an agent of the government is, is uh, taking someone's life, um, in order for us to maintain uh, ourselves as a profession, that requires a, a competent, thorough, uh, fair, and unbiased investigation. So we really strive to, to achieve that here at, at our agency. Last year, we did 69 of those investigations uh, over which I've oversaw. We're at uh, 45 so far uh, this year. And uh, again, we want to make sure that we're doing best practices. And I love to share what I have learned uh, with with those that I teach uh, through PATC. So when we define officer-involved shooting, does that include when someone has shot at an officer? Yes, absolutely. It can. And uh, we we have an umbrella term that we use, officer-involved critical incident, which would include an officer-involved shooting, would include things like in-custody deaths, 
or allegations of excessive use of force, even if it doesn't result in death, but might result in in serious physical injury uh, to to someone. So an officer-involved shooting is just a small subset of uh, the the larger uh, term of officer-involved critical incident. Uh, Mark, I, I have a question for you. At FDLE, we paid, we stayed pretty busy with um, in-custody deaths in the Department of Corrections. Do you guys handle that also? Uh, we, we are not by statute required to do that, uh, but we will if an agency requests us to. So we are the investigative arm of our attorney general's office. Um, our, our state does not have a state police, so uh, we are by request only. So if an agency wishes an outside independent investigation, uh, then they can make that request of us, and we certainly will do those, those types of investigations. Uh, but historically, the, the majority of the officer-involved critical incident investigations that we do tend to be of the shooting sort or an in-custody death. Well, as on-call agents, sometimes the DOC kept us really busy. And um, I'll never forget one time uh, an inmate wrote on the wall with the other inmate's blood, call FDLE. <laughs> so it was um, not funny, but you, you just didn't know what you were walking into. And of course, you were 29 years. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Yep, yep. Give us a little more detail about what a student might uh, expect if they were taking your class. So we start off kind of with with the the basics, and we that that begins with leadership. So we uh, the the first morning we're talking about leadership topics and arriving to the scene of an officer-involved critical incident, whether you're that first investigator on the scene uh, or even for patrol personnel, patrol supervisors, they tend to be a very chaotic uh, scene. Um, th- there's lots happening uh, simultaneously. There can be injured persons. There can be deceased people. There can be family members showing up. There can be a, uh, a subject that was involved that's potentially fleeing from the scene that needs to be apprehended. Uh, so there's just a lot of simultaneous moving parts. So we, we begin the class with talking about leadership skills and trying to prioritize those tasks that we need to accomplish uh, very early on and also um, maintaining a calm, cool head in, in those those very chaotic situations because certainly if uh, if we are very excited and we're yelling and screaming, that, that's going to transfer to the, the other personnel there at the scene as well uh, versus if, if we're calm, that can have a calming influence on, on those uh, other investigators as well. So, uh, so we start off with the leadership. Uh, then we move into talking about the crime scene itself, uh, everything from the legal issues to the various types of evidence that we we might want to uh, collect. And then we move into the the follow-up investigation, the things that would be done in the days and weeks after uh, an incident, uh, everything from the legal standards that we need to look at to dealing with video evidence, action, reaction, research, dealing with the news media and various other topics, uh, how to interview an officer, neighborhood canvassing uh, and so forth. Sounds very interesting. Are there typical protocols that your department goes through when you're conducting an investigation? Yes, uh, we have very, very specific uh, protocols. And actually, um, I was tapped by our attorney general to to write a book uh, for him on his behalf uh, for the protocols, the best practices for investigating an officer-involved critical incident. Um, all of the members of the class, as well as the public in general, um, have access to the free ebook version of, of that that uh, we give that link out during, during the class. Class. Uh, but yes, we, we have uh, very s- uh, specific protocols and it's a living document. So it, it's our protocols are constantly changing uh, based on new case law, based on new technology that, that comes uh, available for us. And uh, just based on our understanding, things that I even learned from other students in class, the way uh, things are done in other states and uh, other jurisdictions that I can perhaps take back to our agency and improve upon the way we do things. Always keeping an open mind. 
Mark, I, I have a question for you. And uh, having been on the local level as well as like you at the state level, do you reach out into the basic police academies and uh, give any presentations there? And uh, I don't I don't ask this from a, a, a area of knowledge in that now that I've been retired, but I think it'd be really critical now with the with the state of law enforcement in our society that uh, maybe we start kind of um, at the get go when these long, young officers, when we tell them about the policy procedure and the laws related to use of deadly force or blunt trauma force or any type of force like that, what the officers can expect and any any resources available to them during the process for their mental well-being as being investigated. Yes. So um, my, my specific agency, we do not generally go into to the police academies. Uh, however, uh, our sister agency under the attorney general's office is the Peace Officer Training uh, Academy. Uh, so they, they definitely have have that aspect. Uh, but what we have done in our agency, um, I actually wrote a booklet. It's about a 15 page booklet that kind of summarizes uh, our protocols. And it ends with a frequently asked questions section. So we can hand this booklet out to those involved officers. And hopefully it's going to answer a lot of the questions that they're they're going to have. Um, they're going to know our process and what to expect out of the investigation. They're going to know the time frames. They're going to know our preferences on on questions such as do we want them to watch their body cam video or not prior to their, their formal criminal interview and, and so forth. So there's lots of topics like that that we've tried to broach in a very approachable booklet format uh, that we can just hand uh, to officers. And we do often and frequently go to agencies upon request and give presentations uh, to their staff to let them know what to expect if they are ever involved in, in one of these incidents. And of course, hopefully they never are. They're never fun for anybody involved. What's the answer to that question? Do you uh, typically allow the officer to view the body cam footage? So that it's a very complicated answer, and there is no uh, set right or wrong answer uh, across the country. There are definitely pros and cons uh, both ways. Um, what I talk to about uh, with with the students in the class is our preference. Our agency is for the officers to not watch uh, the video uh, before the interview, and and this all comes down to Graham versus Connor, which is the landmark United States Supreme Court decision uh, that is the the guiding force. For for whether or not a, a use of force is lawful or not. And what the, the Graham decision tells us is that we have to judge, quote unquote, the officer's uh, conduct through the, the lens, through the perspective of an objectively reasonable officer on the scene. Uh, so what did that officer see? What did they perceive? What conclusions did they draw? And then what actions uh, did they have relative to that? And the body cam does not accurately portray that. The, the body cam is going to show whatever uh, is within the field of view and sound capabilities of, of that particular device, and it is not the perspective of the officer. Uh, and we need to judge this by the perspective of the officer. And many times officers are going to have things like tunnel vision. Uh, they're going to be focusing on, on the threat and the threat only, and they're going to be completely unaware of other things that are transpiring around them. But yet the body cam or the dash cam video may pick those, those other things up. Uh, so by an officer watching the video, um, our experience has been that they tend to start to confuse their actual memories with things that they've learned after the fact through the uh, the body cam video or the dash cam video. And uh, that can actually have an adverse effect in some instances on, on the officers because the legal standard, again, is, is that little bit of information that they knew at the moment that they utilized force. And that, that video is going to 
give them a lot more information than what they actually knew at the moment that they, they pulled the trigger. So our preference would be for them to not uh, watch the video to explain the incident from their perspective, what their perceptions were, what their decision points were along the way and why they decided to utilize deadly force. And then what we would typically do is after that formal untainted interview has occurred, we would offer them the opportunity to watch the video at that point. And if that video refreshes their memory about something they previously forgot or they notice a discrepancy that they want to uh, explain, we would then provide them an opportunity to do so at the end of of that interview. Interesting issue. Uh, You talked a little bit about handling the press. These are, of course, highly volatile situations. What are are some of the uh, points that you pass on to your students in that regard? Well, certainly ignoring the press is not a good idea. Um, they, they do play a vital part in, in our democracy across the United States. And um, I think that if you uh, stand in front of a camera and you say no comment, uh, that almost invites uh, critique, that invites conspiracy theories and cover-ups and, and so forth. Um, what, what I usually uh, would uh, advocate for uh, at least first-line personnel that might be on the scene, first-line supervisors or you know investigators, uh, would be to talk about the process at least. Uh, initially. You can talk about your protocols, how you're going to conduct the investigation, what sort of things you're going to do. Like we're going to collect physical evidence. We're going to document the scene. We're going to submit that evidence to the crime laboratory for analysis uh, without necessarily talking about the specifics of that particular incident. Um, so that can get you through and buy you some time for at least uh, you know several hours until maybe your public information officer or your chief of police is on scene uh, and then they can kind of take it over from there. Um, you know, talking about the process is something that I think we all should be able to do uh, fairly easily. It's not giving away any of the uh, confidential information uh, for the investigation, and it certainly sounds a lot better than just saying no comment. Yeah, these certainly can be highly volatile situations and ones that require delicate community relations, I'm quite sure. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And, you know, again, for, for police uh, as a profession to have legitimacy, uh, we have to have the support of, of our public. And, and that, that's where our authority is derived. We are, you know, a country of the people, by the people, for the people. Um, and as police officers, sheriff's deputies, and so forth, we are uh, that, that arm of the public uh, sworn to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And when we uh, util- utilize force, the public has a vested interest in ensuring that that force that was used on their behalf was lawful. And uh, that's where coming in and and doing a competent, thorough investigation is necessary for the entire profession uh, to maintain that trust of of our communities. And it's also necessary for for those involved officers, certainly, as well. They they absolutely um, uh, deserve a fair, thorough, unbiased investigation uh, where no no stone has been left unturned. Uh, Because the one thing that I could never live with, and I wouldn't be able to sleep at night is that if I know that some sort of an injustice has occurred to where either an officer has gone to prison uh, for something that they didn't deserve to go to prison for or vice versa, uh, they don't have uh, any ramifications for unlawful conduct uh, because of something I did or didn't do in my investigation. I want to ensure that I have done everything possible to unturn every every stone uh, to make sure that every fact and detail has been, has been recorded uh, so that way the, the officer gets a fair shake at the end of the day. 
Well, Mark, I, I would think um, your presentation is ultra important in that. Would you agree? And um, your micro, you know, just um, coaching people on being natural with their microfacial expressions. Those that are talking to the press to try to to convey some uh, genuine concern and the uh, I'm looking, I'm searching for another word, but to try to connect with that audience out there. And um, a lot of departments don't have the advantage of a skilled PIO. So, do you guys ever step in and give those releases for the agency? Yeah. So many times the, the local agency will, they'll give out some initial information uh, about what happened, maybe what the, uh, the call was that the officer was responding to and some, some very basic information. And then if they so choose, they, they can refer, uh, the, those, uh, the future, uh, inquiries to, to our agency and our PIOs uh, for the, for the state will, uh, handle all of the, those future inquiries. And, and that seems to work really well, uh, where the, the local authorities can at least get out some initial information to to their public very quickly, very timely. Um, that they're their public servants, so uh, you know they probably know their local community, their local press the best. Uh, but then, as the the investigation goes on, we're independent of that agency, so they may not even know uh, necessarily everything that is transpiring with the investigation because we're a separate separate agency and we're keeping that distance between them. Uh, so that's where our our PIO can can come in and be helpful as well. Perfectly answered. Thank you, sir. With the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, we had to respond to a lot of those types of shootings. And uh, one of the things that I was majorly concerned with, and I have no way comparable experience with you, it was uh, kind of an on-call agent kind of thing. And we'd get it, uh-oh, we'd have to go to these types of things. And um, I always tried to um, get the officer off and have him to take a deep breath. And I would really like to look at your pamphlet that you guys hand out being retired, uh, just, just kind of getting myself up to speed as to what the, the best practices is of this day. But um, the thing of taking the officer's gun and things like that is such a, oh gosh, a complicated kind of um, situation wh- that you want to deal with with, um, with care when you, when you deal with that shooter in, in the incident until all the facts are known. Absolutely. And, and we, we do definitely talk about various aspects of that in, in the class. Um, things, things like the, the benefits of replacing that officer's gun yes, uh, after, after taking it. And we talk about things as well, like uh, Mirandizing the officer, whether or not that's a good idea or not prior to taking the officer's uh, formal interview. Uh, we offer some alternatives uh, to Miranda and, and so forth. So I think it, at the end of the day, what the overarching theme uh, that I try to do with, with my course is to present present uh, various issues regarding the, the use of force. I, I do provide a blueprint for the students that they can follow if they want, but I want them to uh, know the pros and the cons of many of the controversial aspects of this so that they can make an informed decision themselves. What is best for their community, their agency, um, and then they are able to defend the decisions that they make on how they want to go about handling these very controversial incidents uh, because they'll know both the pros and the cons. So I, I give them, hopefully, the resources to be able to do that. Bendis Job, you're an excellent instructor. We really appreciate being affiliated with you and look forward to seeing you soon. And Dave, thank you. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at podcast one at gmail.com. One, two, three.